0: there, thanks for tuning in to St John's Ashfield Sermon Podcast.
1: We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Okay, from Genesis
0: chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But But for the man there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. Our second reading is from Matthew chapter 19, uh, starting at verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went to the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. Large crowds followed him there, and he cured them there. Some Pharisees came to him, and to test him they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command us to give a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her? He said to them, It was because of you... You were so hard hearted that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for unchastity and marries another commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, is it better? It is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can accept this teaching, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Well, as uh, Louisa mentioned, we uh, this evening resume a series from last year in the Gospel of Matthew. And to connect this series with our time just finished in the book of Ruth, um, uh, you may recall if you've read the Gospels before, particularly the Gospel of Matthew, how Matthew begins. It begins with a long genealogy, one of those really ripping sort of racy starts, a long list of names, including Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, and so on and so on and so on to Jesus. One of the themes of Ruth is the way that God weaves our small, fine-grained stories into his big picture story, and that's exactly what's happened here. Ruth's story is etched into the lineage of Jesus, the biggest story of them all. And that's where Matthew's Gospel picks up. We, we see from chapter 1, Jesus described uh, the purpose of his existence here on earth. It's to bring in the kingdom of God. Uh, that is to say, the gospel, and including the gospel of Matthew, is about the coming of God's kingdom on earth, the coming of glory in the life and ministry of Jesus specifically. And it is—it's an awesome read. I mean, it's—it's a, it's a wonderful thing to try and, in a sense, read the gospels with fresh eyes to read it for the first time again. When when glory breaks out on earth, we see evil confronted. We see outcasts healed and restored into community. We see blind people receiving their sight. We see the proud brought low. We see people reconciled together. We see the dead raised. And by chapter 19, we find ourselves in the middle of Jesus describing the manner of life for anyone who's been swept up into this kingdom movement that's led by Jesus. In other words, this chapter and the next, as we're going to spend our next couple of weeks uh, looking at, is all about what it means to live as a member of God's kingdom in the present, in the midst of a world that's not aligned with what God is doing in his world. And one way to describe this kingdom way of life is the beautiful way. That's, that's what we've called this series the beautiful way. You, you see it in Jesus himself, the, the awesome poise. Peace, clarity, focus, rest. Even in the midst of all the drama that he's a part of, it's a beautiful way that he goes. And his promise is that anyone who joins him in that way, in the power of his spirit at work in their lives, their lives will be like, well, like light in darkness. Or or your life will be like overflowing with water in a barren land. To just use two of the images that Jesus uses. That's his promise. And the focus of the passage for tonight is the way of faithfulness, this beautiful way, and specifically the way of faithfulness. And the topic that's brought to Jesus is that of divorce. And I think one of the really interesting things is that although we are millennia uh, distant from Jesus in terms of time and culture and technology. There just are some givens in human experience and the starting and ending of marriages is one of them. Whether you're in the 21st century, you're in the 1st century. Whether you're in Eastern culture, whether you're in Western culture. What Jesus says here is as relevant and significant now as it was then. But not just relevant and significant, potentially painful as well. A divorce is something that I suspect almost every person in the building here this evening has been touched by, either directly or indirectly. Of course, it's not, it's not just one of those things that happens. It's not one of life's sort of speed humps that's sort of your bloop, bloop, go over. No, it's, it's something that affects people profoundly. It leaves marks on their lives that can last for years and even decades. And what that means, I think, is that the challenge for us as hearers is that we can come to what Jesus says here from two quite different positions. On on the one hand, uh, there are people both married as well as those who are not married, who who, even if they admit the hypothetical possibility, basically think, it couldn't happen to me. It couldn't happen to me. It it just seems to them incomprehensible. The very very possibility of divorce. And, And the problem with that is that If it seems incomprehensible in relation to them, then often enough that means it will seem incomprehensible in relation to other people as well, and it's not very far from that to the idea that there's something wrong with them, those who get divorced. And that's a catastrophe. On the other hand, there are those who have themselves been divorced, who've gone through the pain of the breakdown of a marriage, of hope's shattered and dreams destroyed of living through the unlivable, of experiencing rage and pain and self-doubt and despair and anger in ways that they thought unimaginable. And I guess the danger for those of us in that situation is that the pain can be so strong and the memories can be so raw and the subject can become just so difficult that the result is we feel we can't open ourselves to hearing what it is that Jesus has to say. There's just no strength left for us in that area of life. And so tonight I want uh, to ask each of us to make a particular effort of imagination. Not so much the imagination to try and understand other people's situation, although that's really, really important all the time, actually. No, imagination that allows us to see God's word to us here tonight in Jesus Christ as the wisdom and the strength that we need. So... Let's get into the topic. As we approach this interaction between uh, Jesus and the Pharisees, uh, we need some context. And the key thing to know is uh, that divorce is what I'm going to call derivative. Divorce is derivative. What what I mean by that is that since divorce is one way to end a marriage, uh, the other way being the death of one of the spouses, what do you think about divorce, right? What do you think divorce is and how it works and and how to handle it and respond to it and so on. What do you think about divorce is almost entirely a function of what you think about marriage. You, you, can, you can see how this works. This is Jesus' approach to the question because when the Pharisees ask him about divorce, he responds in classic Jesus style. He doesn't answer their question at all. They ask him about divorce. Instead, he tells them about marriage. They ask him about the secondary thing. He wants to tell them about the primary thing. And of course, when it comes to the question of marriage, our culture is getting further and further and further away from anything that Jesus might have to say. The story our culture tells us about marriage is clear, it's it's immensely strong, and it's quite appealing in many ways. It flows from the kinds of relationships that actually make sense in what you might call a technocratic world, in a world which is culturally technological, that is where the the principles of technology and production have kind of seeped into every pore of our society, there really are only two kinds of relationships that make sense at all. On the one hand, there are function relationships. Function relationships include the ideas of authority and duty, of power and punishment where efficiency and objectivity are the keys. The the classic example of a function relationship is your employment, right? The, The only thing that matters in your employment is your skills, your effectiveness, your merit. And anything apart from that we call cronyism and jobs for the boys, nepotism. What matters is getting things done In the minimum of time and with the maximum of focus and effort. And and authority belongs there and it's the power to punish or reward. That's one kind of relationship. But of course, we know life can't be lived like that always. And so there's another kind of relationship. You might call it the emotion based relationship, a kind of exact mirror image to a functional relationship. Here, there is no authority, there is no duty. There's no real responsibility, there's no efficiency, there's no goals, there's no outputs. Here, there's only one thing that matters, and that's fun. Voluntary entrance and therefore voluntary exit. And the ideal of this kind of emotional relationship is that it feel fulfilling to the individual. Now, of course in our society, if those are the only two kinds of relationships you can have, you're not going to stick marriage in this first functional relationship, are you? Of course, it's going to go into the second category. It's perhaps the ultimate example of this second category. Marriage is fundamentally a private affair for our culture. A couple fall in love, they get married. While they're still in love, there remains a basis for the marriage. And of course, if sadly the feeling fades when the relationship is no longer fulfilling and doesn't lead to fullness of life, it's not conducive to personal wholeness, then in our culture there's not only a license but but actually a duty, a duty to yourself to dissolve the relationship and look for a better one. Now, I'm not telling you anything you haven't seen a million times on television shows and in books and on ads, endlessly, This is the way the the narrative is not even presented to us. It's it's just what we all know and assume, that these are the way things work. These are the only two kinds of relationships that we can have. And if that's the story that we're telling ourselves, and and that's the story of our culture, in that story, a statistic like one-third to one-half of all marriages ending in divorce makes sense. And the only real challenge is how to help people do it as painlessly and as simply as possible. Jesus tells us a different story. He tells us a different story about the world and therefore he tells us a different story about divorce because he tells us a different story about marriage because for Jesus marriage is not a fundamentally private affair it's a fundamentally divine affair. Uh, the Pharisees question Jesus about divorce they invite him to wade into a well-known controversy among contemporary rabbis at the time. We have the the documents where these two sides of a debate sort of argue out with one another, um, and uh, it, it starts by assuming the practice of divorce and asks the question, all right, if divorce is okay, then what are the grounds for it? What are the legitimate grounds for divorce? And there were two rabbis that we read about, one called Shammai, who's a very strict rabbi. He said that very thin grounds, the only reason that you're allowed to get divorced, was on the ground of adultery by one of the spouses. But then there was another rabbi, his name was Hillel, he was a much more liberal rabbi, he said that men had much, 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 and so of course it was only men, who had much greater freedom to divorce their wives if she messed up with dinner, then just give her the flea. I don't think you'd like Hillel as a friend. Very, very... And so they ask, verse 3, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? Are are you going to be like Hillel? Jesus, I mean, come on, what are you going to say here? And Jesus' answer is clear and forceful. Verse 4, he answered, have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. As I mentioned in this section of Matthew's Gospel, we're being taught uh, what it means to be a follower of the beautiful way, a follower of Jesus, to walk in his footsteps. And and the point is that when there's darkness in the world and when there are remnants of that darkness in our hearts, the beautiful way means disciples are called to do kind of very countercultural and even potentially painful things like deny themselves and take up their cross. Disciples are called uh, to become like little children and to humble themselves. Disciples are called to take radical surgery in their lives and cut out anything that will get in the way of their entering eternal life. Disciples in the last chapter actually are called to forgive wrongs that are done to them, not seven times. I mean, that's a lot of times to forgive something, right? Not, not 70 times, which is a really lot of times to figure. 70 times seven times. And what Jesus is doing here, that the chapter headings aren't original um, and, and, and sometimes can be a bit, I think, misleading. He's saying that marriage is to be understood as just one more aspect of discipleship and just like all aspects of discipleship, it requires faithfulness and focus. Now, notice three vital things in what Jesus says here. The first thing is the nature of marriage. The nature of marriage. As far as Jesus is concerned, marriage is a covenant. A covenant is an unconditional mutual promise. And a covenant stands in contrast to a contract. A contract has conditions that have to be fulfilled. Uh, the phrase uh, that we have in our translation, be joined, a, father, a man will leave his father and mother uh, and be joined to his wife, um, actually is translated uh, sometimes, particularly the King James old old version, as cleave. And so you'd have leave and cleave, and it rhymed and that was good. Leave your father and mother and cleave to your spouse. And cleave is a special word. It means literally to glue or cement together. It's language that's used in the Old Testament to describe the covenant relationship. Because when you make a covenant, what you do is you you bind yourself to another by way of promises without conditions. And if you're at the wedding last week, you'll know what those promises are to have and to hold, to love and to cherish. That's what's promised. And you know what the, the territory is? For better and for worse, for richer and for poorer in sickness. And in health, every possible circumstance, every up, every down, for as long as our lives go on, for as long as we both shall live. You make a cup, there's no ifs, there's no untils. There's no unlesses. Ifs, untils, and unlesses are a contract, marriage is a cleaving, a covenant. You cement your commitment to that person rather than letting the relationship be defined by feelings, which, of course, change. Uh, author Lewis Smeads wrote a really terrific article uh, years ago. He said, when you make a promise, you've created a small sanctuary of trust within the jungle of unpredictability. Isn't that a lovely phrase? You, you, a covenant creates a small sanctuary of trust. There's a lot of mess in the world. Contracts broken, conditions not fulfilled all the time, and, and Smead says you create a small sanctuary of trust, or a, a relationship where you, your performance isn't always under the microscope like at work, a, a relationship where you don't have to worry that at any minute you might be kicked to the curb because someone more interesting comes along. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, the only possible way for you not to be controlled by your past but to control your past is through forgiveness. That's very interesting comment, actually. Think about that. The only way for you not to be controlled by your past is through forgiveness. And then he goes on to say, the only way you can control your future and not be controlled by your future, your hormones, your genes, your circumstances, is a covenant. A promise with no conditions. And marriage is a covenant promise, a cleaving, not a contract. Which actually relates to the second thing, which is to notice not just the nature of marriage, but the agents of marriage. This covenant union, which takes place in marriage, is one that God does. It's it's such an interesting and important thing that Jesus says here. Marriage is not only a private matter. It is not merely two people having some shared experiences and enjoying each other's company and then deciding to spend the rest of their lives together. Of course, it's that. But it's more than that too. God joins people together and constitutes them as one flesh. What God has joined together That one flesh relationship is a union that's expressed profoundly in the sex act where the union of flesh is apparent and concrete. But it's more than just what the couple do with each other. This union is what God does to them. He makes them one flesh, that is one family, one flesh and blood. Uh, I remember uh, going once to uh, an awkward meeting of a couple who had joined a church that I was at uh, previously And it started getting involved in the church, and it turned out that they were living together without having been married. And as we began the inevitably interesting conversation, um, I came up with a question. The question I came up with to help them see what was happening here was I asked them, how many families were there represented in the room? How many families were there represented in the room? There was two of them and me. And they immediately understood the importance of the question. See, because if they conceived of themselves as married, what would the answer be? How many families in the room? Two. But they knew that they weren't. And both of them said that there were three families in the room. They knew they weren't married because married is when God makes you one family, binds you together in such a way that... uh, you know, there's a new entry in the list of families in the, in the universe. Do I, 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 you know that list? There's a great big list somewhere. I'm not sure where it is. I think God has it. A list of all the families that there are. And when a new marriage takes place, there's a new entry in that list. Notice, by the way, that when God joins a man and a woman together in marriage, uh, that's, that's a gift that he gives to all people. That's not just a gift that he gives to his people. So so people who don't know anything about God, Muslims and, and, and Buddhists and atheists and haters of God, every, people who are married are really married by God. God does it to them. It's a gift of what's called God's common grace to everyone. Which leads in thirdly to not just the nature of marriage, not just the agents of marriage, but thirdly the longevity of marriage. God does it. And therefore, Jesus says, we are not to undo it. God does it, and therefore we're not to undo it. The contrast in the original language is powerful. What God has joined together, let not a human separate. What God has done, oh my goodness, let not a human separate. Notice what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say that what God has joined together cannot be separated. And you, might, you might think well, what God does, he can't undo what God does. Well, actually, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says what well, God has joined together, let not a human separate. Jesus does not teach here what is called the indissolubility of marriage, as though once you're married, you're forever married no matter what. No, Jesus recognises that separating what God has joined together is actually possible. But he says, let it not happen. Let no human undo what God has done. That would be terrible. Now, this Jesus just echoes the consistent approach of the whole Bible. Uh, I, the Lord, hate divorce is the emotional Old Testament equivalent. Notice it doesn't say, I hate divorced people. No, of course not. But I hate divorce, God says, for all the damage and devastation that it brings into human lives. Of course. Now, at this point, Jesus is even stricter than the strict rabbi uh, Shammai, and so the Pharisees asked Jesus, verse 7, why then did Moses command us to give a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her? Now, when, when you read, did you catch the slip? That the, this is Pharisees at their Pharisaical most miserable. Right? Did you notice the slip? They're rotten sods. It may well be the case that the law of Moses envisages situations where couples divorce, but that is hardly Moses' commanding divorce, is it? Right? Yes, and, and saying, give a certificate. And Jesus picks them up on this. He, he, he gets into their heart. It's like a, a laser that goes right through them. He picks up on this attempt to exploit Moses' concession and to twist it and turn it into command and so in verse 8, he said to them, it was because you're so hard-hearted that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Yes, Jesus says that there are some cases when divorce is the lesser of two evils. Yes, Moses did permit it. But but notice, of course, what Jesus says. It's because of human hard-heartedness that divorce is necessary like this. Jesus knows us all. All too well, he knows the way that we make covenants and also, therefore, the ways that we break covenants, all the myriad patterns of human weakness and wickedness, whether by adultery or desertion or abuse. These are all covenant-crushing acts. That's not the way things are meant to be. It's not the way God made it to be. God has joined them together as one flesh. And yet sometimes it is necessary to separate what God has joined together because of hardness of hearts. And actually, what the Pharisees are doing right there, looking for ways out of a marriage. You know, this is what's so great about Jesus. He just, he's like, It's like the heat underneath, it just brings the junk to the surface. You see the Pharisees demonstrating hardness of heart right there in front of Jesus. And that's the Bible's basic picture on divorce, which is derivative, on marriage, which is the first order issue. And I want to suggest that in a sense, so far, actually, that's relatively uncontroversial when you think about it. Okay. Once you, once you sort of recognise the shallowness of our contemporary secular culture's approach to relationships, uh, the, the plain truth is that no one goes into a marriage looking to get divorced. So people don't say at the marriage, "You know what? I'm in this for a, a solid, you know, eight to ten, and then I'll, I'll I'll reevaluate at that point." Is that okay? Sure, no problem. Me too. I was thinking three or four. Right. No one says that. This is actually, truth be told, what everyone thinks about marriage at the start. We all say amen, I suspect, when Jesus says what God has joined together, let no human separate. There's a reason why God hates divorce. It's so dreadfully destructive in people's lives. It's what comes next that's perhaps even harder then. You see, having been married, for many people, it's very hard not to want to be married again, to be remarried. And although there are some for whom a broken marriage is the last they ever want to see of a husband or a wife, for many, the desire to try again and to remarry is very powerful. And in fact, take that one step further, in the first century as now, it's often the case that the purpose of divorce is precisely to exit an existing marriage in order to enter a new one. Right? That it's not just... The, sort of the thing that comes next in life, it's actually a deliberate action to move to a new one. And so listen to what Jesus says, verse 9, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for unchastity and marries another commits adultery. Suddenly the stakes rise a lot higher. Jesus says that if contrary to the way God made things from the beginning, you tragically find it necessary to divorce, to separate what it is that God has joined together, then that's one thing. But if what comes next is remarriage, then that's a whole different ballgame. In that case, Jesus says there has in fact been adultery. Now I need to slow this down and and think about it very carefully um, because, again, there are three points to notice here. The first is that divorce really does break a marriage. Uh, That's why it was really important, remember I mentioned a while ago, to hear Jesus carefully when he said that What God joins together, let not a human separate, rather than a human cannot separate. There are some things that God does that we can undo. And marriage is one of them. The marriage really is ended. That's what a divorce does. But do you see why that creates a problem here in this sentence by Jesus in verse 9? You see, if that's the case... In what sense is it right to speak of the problem of remarriage being adultery? If a person's gotten divorced and then they've gotten remarried, how is it, if their marriage really is broken in the first place by the divorce, how is it that what their remarriage constitutes is adultery? Surely to commit adultery, you have to still be married, in which case the divorce hasn't actually ended the first marriage. Not quite. What Jesus is doing here is something that he often does, which is to to take an issue and redefine things at a far deeper spiritual level. And the clue is in the connection between the divorce and the remarriage. Imagine a jerk. Uh, Don't name names, right? Imagine a scoundrel who falls for his babysitter and says to his wife, under the law of Moses, I divorce you three times. Apparently, that was all it took. It wasn't, uh, you know, the sort of waiting period that we have now. And I said, "I divorce you. I divorce you. I divorce you." That was a legal divorce, right there and then. And then, 15 minutes later, he feels free himself to take off with the babysitter. He's divorced and remarried, with a close and deliberate connection between them. Technically, not an adulterer, right? Technically not an adulterer, because he got his divorce and his remarriage in the right order. And what Jesus says is, don't you even think like that. Don't you even think that you've evaded the sin of adultery just because you found a technical way to end the first marriage before starting out on a second marriage? No way you divorce and marry another like that and you committed adultery well and truly, not technically maybe, but spiritually. But third, notice that Jesus gives an exception to this rule. Except for unchastity, he says. That is except for sexual immorality or adultery. In that case, the immoral spouse, and I take it those other cases as well, well, desertion and abuse, the the other spouse has so betrayed the marriage covenant that if if forgiveness is not possible, if reconciliation and finding a way forward are just too elusive, if the other person is not willing to do that, perhaps then the divorce does not prevent someone from remarrying. You can see the issue that Jesus is addressing with, and as always, see there's two simplistic ways to deal with this. Right on the one hand, you can say. Marriage is what God wants. It's permanent. And if, you, if, you, if you're divorced, then you're just, you're gone. You're, you're just, you're blackened yourself and you're gone. And that's the end of the story, right? That's one way to. That's terrible. But then if you say, no, 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 no. Look, I mean, marriage and divorce come, go here, there. It doesn't matter too much. Can't do that either. That's, you know who the victims of that approach to marriage are, right? Women and children all the time in every culture throughout all of history. Women and children. Crushed by it. And so Jesus is not going to go for either of those two. Both of those are unacceptable, and so he does the the difficult, real, deep, true spiritual thing, which is to hold two things together at the same time. Precisely because marriage holds a significant place it does in the creation purposes of God, it means that scandalous remarriage, that is, divorce specifically for the purpose of remarriage, simply can't be endorsed by Jesus. And yet given the hardness of heart and that we're all messed up and broken people, sometimes divorce is the lesser of two evils. All right. I want to finish by asking the question, what should the church's attitude be to divorced people? And perhaps particularly to divorced and remarried people. Can they be members of the Christian church? Now I'm I'm going to say something I don't often say and and, um, I'm going to use a word I don't often use in sermons but I, I want to say this in the fullest possible sense of the word, that is a stupid question. And it's utterly crucial that we all get right in the marrow of our bones how stupid a question it is and why it is stupid. Can such people be members of the Christian church? It is a stupid question. Jesus made it absolutely crystal clear that it's not those who are well, who have need of a doctor, but the sick. He came not to call the righteous. He's got nothing to offer righteous people. You know that, don't you? He's got nothing to offer righteous people. He came to call sinners. And that means all of us. The church is only ever a community of redeemed sinners, those who've been rescued by God from whatever junk and sin has messed up our lives. Redeemed and therefore repentant sinners, those who turn away and turn away and turn away again and again and again from the sin that clings so closely. That's the only, look at, you can look around if you like. That's the only kind of people that are in this room. It's the only kind of people that can ever be in a church. You see, the issue actually is not whether divorced people or divorced and remarried people can be part of the church. The issue is really whether we, the church in general, and we, the church specifically here at 6pm, are the kind of community of which divorced people or, for that matter, those who are chronic liars or alcoholics or who are selfish or greedy or whatever sincerely wanting to know the mind and will of God and to walk in his ways, would want to be a part of? Are we that kind of community? Do do we ourselves have such an overwhelming experience of the grace of God in our own lives because we know the actual darkness of our own hearts? Even if we're very, very good at presenting it in beautiful middle-class ways, very happy, you know, trendy, sort of culturally appropriate inner-west sort of ways, we're very schmick at that. But that doesn't fool us for a second. We know that the only thing we live by is the grace of God, that we know how to extend that grace to others. Of course, the experience of divorce is very spiritually complex. It stands there in the past. It it can be felt as something like a stain that renders a person unclean and unfit and dirty. Which is precisely why the grace and mercy of God are so often spoken of as a washing, a washing of us clean. Utterly, spotlessly, gloriously clean in a way that only the power and the open arms of God can do so that his yes to us, yes, drowns out all of the other no's that we hear from others and maybe most painfully from ourselves. Uh, Divorced people often talk to me about this sort of terrible feeling of stigma. There's a stigma attached to this. But in the community of Christ, there's only one stigma. There's only one set of marks that define us. They're the marks on Jesus' hands and feet, the marks of the bearing of our burdens and the washing of our sins. One of the challenges I think that this interaction with Jesus puts to us as a community is to be sufficiently aware of and open about our own struggles with sin, with real deep hard sin, not just whether you break the speed limit or how you're filling your tax return, but the actual deep profound temptations and then f- failures and fallings into temptations of jealousy. And hatred, and adultery, and greed, and fear, and whatever it might be, that we actually live in grace, so that people would find this community to be a safe place in which to walk the walk of faithful discipleship to Jesus. Because the factor of the matter is that there is always a way forward in the grace of God. There is always a way forward in the grace of God. The, the really thorny issue in this area is how to repent of something when the undoing of it makes things worse rather than better. Right? That's, it's complicated. It's difficult. How do you repent of a divorce? Or how do you repent of a divorce and a remarriage? Yes, divorce is contrary to the purpose of God. And yes, divorce and remarriage, especially divorce for the specific purpose of remarriage, is doubly contrary to the purpose of God. And we call those things sin. But sin is never the final word when the grace and the power and the blood of Jesus are at work in a person's life. Those things can be repented of even when the situation that constitutes the sin is best left intact, do you see? Neither divorce nor remarriage is the unforgivable sin. Will you hear that? Never let it be that people feel stigmatised because of these things. Divorce and remarriage are not the unforgivable sin. Jesus is perfectly clear what the unforgivable sin is. That's the refusal of the work of the spirit in your life. That's naming the power of God to be the work of the devil. Say, by welcoming sinners. And a key test of a maturity of a Christian community is its ability to handle the concrete knowledge and experience of people who in their midst do sin. And repent. Holy Spirit-filled people who sin and repent and keep on struggling. Because that's the only kind of people there are in a church. Well, the fact is that marriage is hard. For a man and a woman to build a life together, bringing their often conflicting needs and desires into a harmonious whole is a great challenge only possible in the strength and grace of God. All sinners are incompatible deep down. Let me just, right? There is no one who's compatible with you. I just want to make that clear to you. All sinners are incompatible with each other deep down. Put two sinners in the close proximity of a marriage and guess what's going to happen? That inca- now, maybe a week down the track, you haven't found that out yet. Although the, I, I've come to believe that the whole idea of a long engagement period is to make life so, no, anyway, we'll go there. What it means is that when a couple builds over the long haul a successful marriage of joy and consolation, it only comes through tears. You might not see them, but they're there. Tears of patience and mutual sacrifice and forgiveness and fidelity. Every marriage at different times is a fragile entity. And so even though it might sound ridiculous perhaps and and maybe particularly to um, this congregation, I want to say to you, don't get divorced quickly. Don't get divorced quickly. It's remarkable how dark things can look when your marriage starts descending into a downward spiral. Um, And in particular, let me just say, get help. When things are getting rocky, get help. And the earlier you get help, the more likely it is to be useful. There is nothing shameful about getting help. Um, And I'm going to say, and this is sexist, I know, blokes, do you hear me when I say there is nothing shameful about getting help? Uh, I've been to marriage counselling when Katrina and I were in trouble. We we talked divorce, we stared it in the face and we said things that we regretted and we wondered and we looked into the abyss. Of course we did. Of course we did. And then we got some help. And we went to counselling. And it's one of the best things that I've ever done. So blokes, don't resist. Don't resist. It's worth it. It's worth it because of the word of Jesus to us tonight. What God has joined together. Do everything. To preserve, leave no stone unturned, no effort unmade. Do anything to prevent that separating. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving um, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beautiful way. And in an ugly world, we're aware that sometimes the beautiful way will be immensely challenging. And will call from us strength that we don't have, not on our own. Forgiveness that we can't muster, not on our own. We pray that as we hear this teaching of the Lord Jesus on marriage and divorce and, and remarriage. That according to the power and strength that's at work in each one of us, your own spirit you would enable us to live out these words in faithfulness, in whatever way you call us, whether married or unmarried. Enable us to live in and therefore be a community of grace. Grace in the genuinely hard parts of human experience. And we ask this thing.